You'll know that we've been making our way through uh, Jeremiah. We have been tackling some difficult passages that have been hard to understand, hard to apply. But along the journey, we've also come across passages that we have found refreshing and encouraging as we continue to seek God's way for us uh, in this world. This evening, we're going to be thinking about catalysts that give hope. So as we do, let's come and let's pray. Our Father, we come to you again seeking your understanding from your word. Thank you that we sit under its authority, that it is our standard, and so we seek your truth as we discover it more. And we ask that you will help us as we apply it to our lives, as we continue to seek and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. In our working lives, we are told that it is wise to think ahead. It's wise to think about the future. And by that, most people think that we should be thinking about savings, pensions, and property. Think of what the road's going to look like long time in the future and get ready for it. So we start to get ready for it by paying into pension plans or savings or getting on the property ladder in the hope that property will increase in value. We're encouraged to think what life is going to be like for us at the age of 65. What lifestyle are we going to have? And then we plan how our pension will help us meet that lifestyle in the years following our 65th birthday. Each year I get my annual pension slip. I've had two so far. And I've been told that I may retire at the age of 73 if I want to live on an income that I'm currently getting. They also tell me that the further I work, that age will come down and my uh, pension will be greater than what my salary is at the moment. That is what they hope will happen. I think we've been learning recently that that may not be the case. So by the time I'm eligible for retiring, it could be 80, and who knows. In our thinking tonight about Jeremiah, we will be looking at Jeremiah, how he used as an example in his day what was going to come in the future. Jeremiah invested in the future. He invested in in what was to come, but it was very different from the way that we naturally think about investing for the future. The story is the people are in exile. Some of them remain in Jerusalem. There really is no hope anywhere for God's people except in one lone voice in Jerusalem for those hearing it. But the people don't want to hear. They don't want to listen to the message, the message from God that Jeremiah is bringing time and time again. Jeremiah, the prophet of God, at the start of chapter 32, is imprisoned. This message that has brought, that he has brought to the people, they've got so sick and tired of it that they've kicked up a fuss, and Jeremiah finds himself in the courtyard of the palace guard, probably in stocks. So, Jeremiah 
is there. It's reached the top level. The king himself, the king of Judah, Zechariah, or sorry, Zedekiah, has Jeremiah in prison. In verse 2 we read, in the courtyard of the guard of the royal palace of Judah. Whether the king himself has got tired of Jeremiah or whether pressure has been put on him by the high priest Zephaniah, going back to Jeremiah 29, 27, when Zephaniah gets his knuckles wrapped for not keeping Jeremiah under control, that message came in a letter from Babylon, from the exiles, those religious leaders who'd set themselves up in exile, they've told Zephaniah, why aren't you keeping this guy in check? Whatever pressure has come on the king, he has put uh, Jeremiah in prison. And the reason why he finds himself in the stocks is told in chapter 37, verses 11 to 21. It's on page 800. Turn it over there and we'll read that little section so we can understand why Jeremiah is in the predicament that he's in. Page 800, chapter 37, verses 11 through to 21. We read this. After the Babylonian army had withdrawn from Jerusalem because of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah started to leave the city to go to the territory of Benjamin to get his share of the property among the people there. But when he reached the Benjamin gate, the captain of the guard, whose name was Arijah, son of Shelemiah, the son of Hananiah, arrested him and said, you are deserting to the Babylonians. That's not true, Jeremiah said. I am not deserting to the Babylonians. But Arijah would not listen to him. Instead, he arrested Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. They were angry with Jeremiah and had him beaten and imprisoned in the house of Jonathan, the secretary, which they had made into a prison. Jeremiah was put into a vaulted cell in a dungeon where he remained a long time. Then King Zedekiah sent for him and had him brought to the palace where he asked him privately, Is there any word from the Lord? Yes, Jeremiah replied, You will be handed over to the king of Babylon. Then Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, What crime have I committed against you or your officials or this people that you have put me in prison? Where are your prophets who prophesied to you? The king of Babylon will not attack you or this land. But now, my lord, the king, please listen. Let me bring petition before you. Do not send me back to the house of Jonathan the secretary, or I will die there. King Zedekiah then gave orders for Jeremiah to be placed in the courtyard of the guard and given bread from the streets of the bakers each day until all the bread in the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. So back in chapter 32, Jeremiah is in the stocks in this courtyard because he's been challenged as being a traitor. He's thrown his lot in and he's heading off with the Babylonians. That, of course, is not the case. And so Jeremiah is there, rather waiting on the Babylonians to come through the gates of Jerusalem to eventually take the city, just as he prophesied would happen. So Jeremiah sits and receives what morsels of food he's given. And while he's sitting there, his cousin comes into him. Back over in chapter 32 on page 794, you'll be able to, to trace this. His cousin comes to him with a business proposition. When we think of the context in which the land is finding itself, 
This is more a business deal to suit the cousin than it is to the benefit of Jeremiah. The country was about to fall. There was no doubt about this. The Babylonian army had surrounded the city. Now, if you had a little piece of land in this once great kingdom that was all of a sudden going to be overrun by the enemy, what would you do? You'd probably want to make the best deal you could and get shot of the land, get the money, and go. If that was going through Hanamel's mind, well, he's come to the right place because Jeremiah hears the offer of a field at Anathoth, the hometown of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says, yes, I'll buy that field. The city and the land are about to be taken and Jeremiah decides it's time to think about getting onto the property ladder. It seems so out of place in this whole story. But for Jeremiah, he's not making a decision for himself. He's making a decision that we read in verses 6 and 8. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, and then in verse 8, by the field at Anathoth. Jeremiah knew that this is what God had wanted him to do. So he went and did it. There was nothing complicated in it. God had said what to do. And even though it seemed the most irrational thing, Jeremiah did it. He bought the field at Anathoth. And in verse 15, we read God's plans for the land. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. From God's view of history, this land was going to be used again. This land wasn't going to be wasted or, or lent to one side, but this land was going to produce again. This land was going to be lived in. This was God's vision and view of history. The exiles will return as he has promised. They will build, they will plant, they will eat, and they will settle. For the people left in Jerusalem, where a little bit later we'll read about their fear of the sword, illness, sickness, plague. That cloud of fear had so encompassed them that they couldn't even see the promises that God would have for them. It was a bleak place. But in the bleakness, God has a view of history that will see his people once again on the land. So Jeremiah does what God leads him to do, and he does it thoroughly. There's no cutting corners here for Jeremiah. He gets all the paperwork completed, and it gets sealed by the officials. And then he puts the documents in a clay jar. The reason is given in verse 14, so that they will last a long time. This is what God said to him. Put them in a clay jar so that they will last. You see, this return to the land isn't going to be an overnight affair. Just as God had said in Jeremiah 29 verse 10, this was going to be 70 years. So though these days, these contracts, this paperwork was to remain protected not so that Jeremiah could go out to his land tomorrow, but that in 70 years' time there would be ownership of the land. This was the long view of God, so that these documents needed to last 
so that the prophecies would be fulfilled and the people would be returned to their land. If you talk to an estate agent today, they will tell you that following the 2008 property crash, the days are coming when it will be all right again. Well, that's what they're convincing us. That once again, property will be bought and it will be sold. House prices will rise and homes will get greater in value. They're looking for it tomorrow. They promise it tomorrow because they want us to get on board to start purchasing and getting things going. If we told our estate agents that they had to wait 70 years for the property market to come around, there would be quite a lot of despair about the place. You see, for God, it's not necessarily about tomorrow. It's not necessarily about the time frame that the world wants to have, but rather it is about God's whole view of history. So Jeremiah, he does what God says, and he puts those documents in a clay jar to sit for those 70 years. And after he's done all the official processes, he prays. And his prayer is revealing because in it he recalls the reason for the exile. In verse 23, he says, They came in and took possession of the land. They did not obey you or follow your law. They did not do what you commanded them to do. So you brought all this disaster upon them. In his prayer, Jeremiah is affirming what God has always said he would do. And in it, he is recognizing the place and the position of God to undertake, as he calls it, this disaster upon them. But it's a few verses later in this chapter that God speaks himself, verses 26 to 34, and he confirms what Jeremiah has prayed. In it, uh, three times God uses the word provoke to describe how the people's actions have brought God to this point in history of punishing the people. And here's what they're responsible for. In verse 30, we read that they are responsible for doing nothing but evil in the sight of God, and they made idols. In verse 33, they turned their backs on God. And in verse 33, they would not listen or respond to God. In verse 34, they set up idols in God's house. In verse 35, they sacrificed to Baal, and they sacrificed their children to Molech the God of the Ammonites. It's quite a list. The things that these people got up to blatantly define God. They've played God the fool. They've treated him like an old grandfather in the corner who they cordially invite in when it suits them and on their terms. The rest of the time they leave him to sit in the corner and they go out and get on with whatever they want to do. And enough is enough. This is happening because the people have turned their backs against God. They have gone for what the world offers. They have gone for all the false gods of their time. And they have rejected the one true God who has proved himself as their only saviour. 
Jumping back a few verses earlier, here again in Jeremiah's prayer, as many times in the book, we have a reminder of how this all came about. We get the full story of Israel. The prayer recounts Israel being called to be God's people and then brought out of Egypt. Then from being given the promised land and God's way of life, we're taught of their obedience and now their punishment. But Jeremiah also prays not in the historical context of what has happened, but he prays for the present because he says at the end of the prayer, we read there about the siege ramps that are on the city waiting for the Babylonians to come in. There's famine. There's plague. And of course, they're waiting on the sword to come as the ultimate judgment on Jerusalem. In Jeremiah's prayer, we get the whole history of what God has for his people. Call. Calling them to be his people. Giving them a promised land flowing with milk and honey. Their fall. Away from God. Away from him and his way of life. To the present. Where the siege of the city is happening. People are dying And many more will follow because of the judgment that is to come. And in the middle of all of this, what does God tell Jeremiah to do? He says, go and buy a field. Jeremiah wears out his silver. In modern money, because I like doing those wee calculations, it's about 125 pounds but he wears it out and he gives it all over. Even though as he's handing over the money and signing signing the paperwork, he has no idea the fullness of God's vision and plan for the future. But what does he do? Like any faithful servant, he goes with it. He recognizes the God of history, the salvation God will fulfill his promises. Jeremiah doesn't know the detail, but he goes with it. And so we go to the second part of what God says at the end of this chapter. We left off at verse 35 uh, with all that the people have done against God. And now God turns from the past to the future. God recognizes what's going to happen to Jerusalem. He says, you have said what is going to happen. Well, let's go beyond it and let's look at what's next. Verses 37 to 44 In these, God paints a new Israel that is ahead. He outlines that uh, he will call his people back again. Those he scattered, he will bring back in. And he will bring them, uh, in verse 38, God again will call them his people. And he will be their God. He will bring them into relationship with him again, first and foremost, Because in that perspective, the land doesn't matter because God is a relational God. So firstly, he will be their God and they will be his people. And then verse 41, that he will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all his heart and soul. Now there's a picture to give hope. It will take 70 years for the people to learn their lessons and to see God in a new way. 
And when they do, all God's promises will be waiting for them. The problem is that at the time of Jeremiah, when he's preaching this and telling this to the people, no one wants to hear because they have been blinded by that cloud of fear. So Jeremiah continues to find himself in the stocks. But God's vision continues, and Jeremiah fully and finally understands why he has bought a little field in Anathoth. In verse 42, this is what the Lord says, As I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will give them all the prosperity I have promised them. Once more fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is a desolate waste without men or animals, for it has been handed over to the Babylonians. Fields will be bought for silver, and deeds will be signed, sealed and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, and in the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills and of the Negev, because I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord." Jeremiah has a fail because the market is going to pick up again. But it's a market for 70 years' time. He's the first one to invest in it. But this purchase is not about investing now for a higher sale later. This is more profound in what Jeremiah is doing. Jeremiah is going to have to wait those 70 years But the day is coming in 70 years' time when life will return to normality for God's people in the promised land. The normality of life, the planting, the selling, the eating, the building, the celebrating, the trading, all will happen again in the land promised to God's people. The people will have changed. The land that they view may have changed And the people will have to learn to adjust to new agricultural ways that are unfamiliar to them in Babylon, that are needed in Palestine. But the God who promised this good will remain faithful. When you think about it, it is quite funny how the purchase of one field can be a catalyst for great hope. Did you hear what God said? God said that fields will be bought for silver and deeds will be signed, sealed and witnessed. Just what Jeremiah had done. God says, Jeremiah, what you have done in this time is a picture of what's going to happen in this land, the land that I promised my people. And it's going to be good. It's a future that has a hope. That no matter how long the intervening years of hardship, the future of hope will become a reality. In verse 27, God asks the question, is anything too hard for me? It's rhetorical. But how God moves through the passage, we begin to see that the answer in this passage is, no, nothing is too hard or difficult for God. The vision that he has painted will come to pass, no matter how bleak the next day may seem. And so this brings us to the here and now. 
God's promises were fulfilled for his people in bringing them out of exile and establishing them in the land. They once again worshipped him. They were called his children and they called him their God. The ultimate fulfillment in a promised land would come in Jesus Christ. And these are the days in which we find ourselves. The days in which we have a promised land waiting for us because of Jesus. When you think about the whole of your life, when I think about the whole of my life, I can recognize moments of laughter and great joy. But I can also recognize moments of sadness, of bleakness, of times where the cloud of fear covers me and I don't see much of a future or much of a hope. But in the lessons from Jeremiah, we have been told about a faithful God. And that faithful God brought us the good news of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ does not give us the idea that it will be all a settled and easy life for us here on earth. Nowhere in the gospel does it promise that. And why should it? Because Paul writes in Romans 8 and verse 21 that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. This world, everything familiar around us, is going to be liberated. Liberated into something greater. Into a glorious freedom of the children of God. A freedom where we are not confined by age, or by health, or by time, or by tiredness. A freedom where we will be in the presence of God himself. This created world is nothing compared to the glorious freedom that is waiting us. We've been looking at John's gospel in the morning services, and in a few weeks we will get to chapter 14. And in chapter 14, it's where Jesus says that he has gone to prepare a place for us. A place not of this world, but in his Father's home. And not just to prepare it, but that he will come again and bring us to be with him for all eternity. For the people in Jeremiah, they would be brought back to the land that God had waiting for them. They would plant, they would harvest, they would settle, they would multiply, they would worship. Jeremiah was making an an advanced purchase to show that freedom of the land was going to be ahead of them. For us, Jesus has done it all through his death and resurrection so that we can have a place in the land that he has for us. This world is not our home. And because of that, yes, we need to deal with grief. We need to deal with sickness. We need to deal with age. We need to deal with money. We need to deal with relationships. But there's something greater in amidst it all. This world is not our home. I was brought up on a very stable diet of Jim Reeves as a child. And I can hear the words echoing in my ears as I was preparing this. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are led up wherever beyond the blue. 
The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. O Lord, you know I have no friend like you. It's heaven's not my home. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. I'm not putting Jim Reeves out there as some great theologian, nor am I going to finish with the words of Jim Reeves. But a very earthly perspective put to song of how our relationship should be with this world. As you and as I face the pain and hurt of this world, are you homesick for the world that you belong to? There is a land promised to you where Jesus Christ has prepared a place for you. That is our hope. That is our land. And this promise comes from our God who remains faithful. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing is too hard for him, no matter how bleak we perceive this world to be. Folks, he's prepared it. And someday he will call us. He will open the door, if you want to take that image, of the room that we will be shown to. And it will be perfect because it has been planned just for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in the life of your people, as we consider ourselves to be your people still, You have always shown us that you fulfill your promises and you've always shown us your way of salvation. You have always remained faithful. So as we face both the joys and the sorrows of this life, help us to see through the fog of bleakness, to reach for that home that is with you in heaven, that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, has prepared, where he is waiting to come back and take us there. Thank you that that is the true fulfillment of your salvation plan, where we will be welcomed into our promised land. Father, help us in this world to get through it so that we can see that bright horizon, that bright hope, not a fanciful notion or a lie, but a reality that is to come. Whether it be 70 years or less, We wait on you to lead us in this world, but also to take us to be in your presence. Thank you, our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.